Would you put your hands together for Rory Stone? We can sit down, Rory. Rory arrived last night from Joburg. The plane was three hours late. Rory was hoping to go to the rugby. I couldn't get tickets in the end, but I think that was a godsend because he was so late and his bag didn't arrive. And so the reason for his, for his very formal dress this morning, these are the clothes that he wore on the plane to be comfortable uh, yesterday in that, uh, 12 hour, in that 12 hour flight from Joburg. Rory, let's take a seat. Thanks, mate. Let's just get to know you a little bit first of all. Uh, Rory, uh, tell us about your family. Uh, my wife, Jill, and I have been married for, well, we will be married for 31 years in December, and we have three boys. Kyle's 24, Ian is 21, and Craig is still in high school. He's 15, turning, well, actually, he's 16 next month, so I should say he's 16. Mm. And I understand that uh, the boys really love soccer, is that right? Devil sport, mate. We don't talk about that game. (laughs) Uh, Just tell us briefly, I I know you'd be very modest about this, and it's not you anyway. It's probably your mother's genes. Your older boy has just cracked a contract with Scotland and might possibly be playing in the World Cup next year. Well, let's hope, yeah. So he um, is contracted from the 1st of November through the Scottish Rugby Union to play sevens uh, for Scotland. And he'll play 15s at Glasgow Warriors. Where that's where my wife was born, Glasgow. Now, so. I was going to ask you, a, a saffer like you, yeah, maybe having a son playing for the enemy. That's right. Well, <laughs> they're not. They're not really the enemy. You're the enemy. You and the Kiwis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, And the Poms, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you have a great love for rugby yourself, and I just want to explore this for a moment. In 1995, at the World Cup. And you've got to be pretty old to remember this. Who remembers the World Cup in 1995 played when Mandela was the uh, president? There's a few people old enough to remember that. And it came down to the final between Australia and England, wasn't it? England? (laughs) No, that great final between the All Blacks and the Springboks and Nelson Mandela wearing the Springbok jumper number six. I want to ask a couple of questions about this, uh, Rory. Uh, this, is, this has been a constant source of amusement to me. You were, you were in charge of the security for every rugby team that came to the country, and so you allocated teams to different members of your security team, but you allocated yourself not to the Springboks, but to the All Blacks. Why would you do that? Tell I'm us why idiot. you did that. I just, uh, I don't know, I lost the plot, mate. I, um, I forgot that as the host nation that the box would also qualify for protection. And as you correctly said, I was the most senior of all the cops uh, assigned to the protection of those teams. And I just kind of forgot that we were, so I chose the next best team and I got the All Blacks. And I don't have many regrets in life, Dave, but that's one of them. Yeah. I, I suspect it was. You are the only high-profile South African to admit or acknowledge that the All Blacks were food poisoned before that final. Does anyone remember that, that part of the drama? A few people might. And so there was, there was a rumour that the All Blacks had been food poisoned and, of course, it was denied all around, but you admit to it. What evidence did you have that made you realise that they had been poisoned? Well, the evidence of my eyes, because I, I was a cop 
at the time, as I've said. And when, so what, what really happened there was that we were in the movies. This is about the, well, it was the Thursday night before the final. That's something I need to clear up because people that talk about this poisoning think that it happened the night before the final. It didn't. It happened two nights before. Um, we were in the movies and the All Blacks were scattered in about five of the various cinemas in the movie complex. And one of them sitting next to me said, listen, I need to get back to the hotel. I said, well, just wait 20 minutes. The film's nearly finished. He said, I need to go now. So I said, okay, let me go and tell the others I'll come back for them. I had a little minivan there. And I went to the cinema next door to go and tell the blokes in there. And as I was walking in, the doors opened in my face and out came Jeff Wilson clutching his stomach. And that's when I knew there was a problem. I said to him, you too, Goldie. He said, yeah, I need to go. We didn't make it to the hotel. Um, Richard Lowe threw the door open and uh, he was spewing in the street on the way to the hotel. When I got to the hotel, it looked like a scene out of Saving Private Ryan. There were players lying in the doctor's room on the floor down the passage and he was walking around administering electrolytes and various other things. And I just knew that this isn't coincidental. Um, to this day, I am convinced that, and I have no proof of this, by the way, I am convinced that it was not South African rugby that were involved in doing that. I am pretty sure it was uh, betting syndicates trying to shorten the odds on the All Blacks who were by far the overwhelming favourites to win that final and they needed to do something about it. So mm. all I can work on is what my eyes told me. That, that wasn't a coincidence. Two-thirds of the squad all get sick two nights before? Nah. Now, I want to ask another question because this goes right to the heart of character and people here may even identify with where we're going here. A very senior member of the All Blacks camp accused you of being involved in the food poisoning. And so your professional and even moral integrity as a leader was questioned. How did, how, how did you respond to that? How, how did you feel about that? Well, to be frank, quite angrily at first, because the, the person um, said, this happened to Tree, you know, Colin Meads, this happened to Tree and his guys in 1970, it happened to us in 76, and it's happened again, and I think you have got something to do with this. To which I responded, as I said, pretty angrily, that I would sooner slit my own mother's throat before I allowed anything to happen to people under my protection. I resent that, and I, I turned on my heel and walked away before I said something that I would regret later. So I guess that's how I reacted. Did that, that ever get resolved? Yes. Um, I never quite got an apology, but the following morning I, I went to the coach and said, uh, Coach, where do you want me to be this morning? Uh, sorry, not uh, the following morning, on the morning of the final. I said, where do you want me to be? Because thus far throughout the tournament, I'd been sitting right next to him. Um, the coach was Laurie Maines, as well as the, uh, the non-playing um, members of the squad. So the reserves were on the bench, and the others were up a few rows, and that's where I sat for all the games. I said, where do you want me to be? And he said, well, sit where you've been sitting all the way along, and I think that's the closest I came to an apology. Mm. Yeah. I wonder whether there may be situations where in leadership, and this is what leadership attracts, it attracts opposition, it attracts prejudice, and there may be people here who have had their professional 
their moral integrity questioned when you've been trying to do the right thing. And sometimes you can be in situations, and this is a very high-profile situation, where it's hard to know how to respond with integrity. Anger and other emotions swirl around. And that's something that's perhaps worth talking together about afterwards. Rory, I just I want to go sorry, back. Yep. Before, before you move on, can I, can I just make one comment? Um, Pete, I saw on the, on the slide that you put up there talking about your series on Daniel. Un uncompromised, is it? That, um, that Daniel is probably my favourite um, Old Testament character precisely because of that. I mean, we're all sinners, we know that, but nowhere in the Bible do we ever read of, of, of Daniel falling and sinning. I'm sure he did because he was human, um, but the story of Daniel and you know, talking about integrity as a leader is, is one of the most extraordinary stories in the Bible. Mm. We'll revisit that. Let's go back and uh, let's talk about uh, not your family with your three boys, but you grew up in a family where there were three boys, yeah. a single parent family, but the sole parent was, was not your mum. Uh, more unusually, it was your dad who brought up the three boys. Christian dad, a journalist. Uh, tell us what it was like growing up in that home and when you left to enter the police force, what your dad did for you that helped you become a Christian. Sure. So my dad wasn't always a Christian. Um, we were, I was born in Cape Town. We moved up to, to Joburg when I was about seven, and that was because my youngest brother was born with a very serious lung disease that nearly killed him. And the doctors said to my parents, get up to Joburg. It's, you know, it's on the high felt, what we call the high felt. It's on the plateau in the center of the country. It's at about 1,600 meters or 5,500 feet of altitude. So the air is very thin and dry up there, which is why we love playing the All Blacks and the Wallabies there because you guys are blowing after about 20 minutes and <laughs> the last 10 minutes are tough at altitude. Anyway, so it did sort out the, the lung problem. And um, my dad would take us to Sunday school but never come to church until, for whatever reason, I think he was invited by some friends across the road. He came to church like many of you sitting here. He was converted. And then he tried very hard, Dave, to make up time. And you can never do that in any context. Uh, but he did send us on youth camps. He made sure we went to Sunday school and to later to um, catechism classes. We were, we, were convert, we were confirmed in that church. But the point is that he, um, he, he tried hard to show us that this newfound faith in Jesus was genuine. So when I went off to police college right out of high school in 1982, he gave me a book called Living and Learning the Christian Life, written by a British evangelist called John Blanchard. And he said, my boy, just read a bit of this book each night. And probably for that reason that he asked me to, I did. And I remember at one point, and I, I can't tell you the exact date, although I did write it in the margin of the Bible that I had at the time, but I was reading Psalm 2 where it says that today you've become my, today I've become your father, today you've become my son. And I remember saying, okay, Lord, it's, maybe, it's time to get serious about your claims on my life. And I wrote that date there. I've since lost the Bible. But it would have been the first half of uh, 1982, I reckon. 
And I committed my life to Jesus and said, Lord, you come and take control of this mess going on here. And he's, ever since 1982, he's done that. Rory, your career as a cop takes off. You specialise in different areas. You specialise in bomb disposal, pretty risky sort of stuff. Uh, tell us uh, how you spent some time with Paul Simon of Simon and Garfunkel fame because you're a bomb disposal expert. That's yeah, it's an uh, interesting story, that. Uh, so, Paul Simon, um, does, is, any, is anybody here familiar with his Graceland album? Okay, good. So, Graceland was the album that launched and discovered Ladysmith Black Mambazo, and he had to get permission, almost, from the ANC, which is the political party of Nelson Mandela, to come to South Africa in 1991. Remember, this is three years before democracy. And the, the way he did that was going to Hugh Masakela, um, who was uh, very prominent in Artists Against Apartheid, and he got the permission to say, okay, even though it's still early, the path that the current government was on is irreversible. We think it's okay for um, artists to now tour South Africa. So he came out there, but not everybody thought that. And the first concert was at Ellis Park, the same Ellis Park where President Mandela handed Francois Pinot the World Cup. And there was a the audiovisual guy who did all of the sound and the speakers in the stadium had an office downtown in kind of one of the not so cool parts of Joburg, a, a, you know, a bit like this here where we are now, a bit dodgy. Um, and um, one of the far left-wing fringe organizations decided that they didn't agree with the ANC, Paul Simon shouldn't be there, and they threw a hand grenade through the office, uh, through the window of the office. This thing detonates there, uh, 11 p.m.-ish, and I get called out as the bomb disposal guy on duty. I go there, not much we can do, it's pitch dark. I said to the cops, just seal this thing off. We'll come back at first light and then do what we do. What we do. You, you literally comb through um, all the, the debris and try and find what detonated here. And I went back home. These were the days before cell phones. I literally am pulling the bedclothes open when my pager goes off. Please call Ati van Veik, who is the, the guy that owned this little audiovisual uh, business and later became the promoter. So I phone him. He says, Rory, come to the hotel. You have to help me save the tour. These Americans want to go home. So I got back in my car and drove another half an hour back into town and sat around a boardroom table with them and basically convinced them to please not leave. This is a loony left thing. The majority of people want this to go ahead and, you know, we can, we, we can make you safe. So he said, all right, we'll stay as long as you come on and basically follow me for the rest of this, this tour. So I had to go and get permission from my commanders to release me for the entire tour, which they did, and fortunately nothing happened, and uh, it was a great concert so tour. breakfast, lunch, and dinner with Paul Simon and every concert. What can I say? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a great story. Uh, Rory, you're in VIP protection. You're also in the special branch, which is a bit like ASIO, and because you're known as a Christian and a churchgoer, they appoint you to the church's unit so you can spy on church leaders. 
Tell me what, it, what that spying involved. So, and there's a, there's a really great story that we can circle back to. But um, I was a very young, very naive warrant officer at the time. And you're right, I was put on the church's section. My uh, section commander gave me the job of listening to the tapes of the telephones of people that we had bugged, whose phones were bugged by the special branch. Every morning I went upstairs and drew these tapes, and there were these old reel-to-reel tape recorders on a big machine the size of the speaker here, and put the headphones on, and I would listen to these conversations, about 30% of which I could understand, because the other 70% were in either Zulu or in Sutu. So the English part I could understand. Then I would write notes down on stuff that I thought was important and may have been subversive to the apartheid state. And that's what I did, um, my first introduction to life at the special branch. You've mentioned the word apartheid. Do you want to just define that word in one sentence or two sentences? Easy. It, it means apartness. So the, the suffix height, H-E-I-D, apartheid, is like apartness. And so what was the ideological, political uh, regime of apartheid? What did that mean for the country? What it meant was that you separated communities and people based on their skin colour. And that ideology of apartness permeated every stratum of society in South Africa. So the National Party came to power in 1948, just after the war, and they basically stole the election. They shouldn't have won that election, but very cleverly they focused their attention and their campaigning on the, on the rural areas, um, where there was still quite a lot of anti-British sentiment following the Boer War, and they won the election that way. And this allowed a white minority to really suppress and exploit the black majority. Correct. Mm. And you grew up in that context, didn't you? Well, when I was born in 63, apartheid had had 15 years to yeah. establish itself. Yeah. So you go into the police force and there is still a... You're, you believe in this ideology. Fully, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you now find yourself, and I'm fast-forwarding here because Nelson Mandela is now uh, the president of the country in 1994, and almost by accident, you discover that you're going to have to look after him. You're in Johannesburg, you're watching the inauguration take place up at Pretoria. You have just been responsible for getting 191 heads of state from their hotels in Joburg to that inauguration and you're sitting back with a cup of coffee for the first time in 48 hours, no sleep. And what comes to your mind? So it was 184, but close, Dave. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So, I always exaggerate. No, it's all good. So uh, you're right. We, my team of men and women were responsible for getting those 184 heads of state, heads of government and royalty up the freeway, 60 k's from Joburg to Pretoria. And I had a f maybe 45 minutes to sit down and kind of get my feet up, have a cup of coffee and watch the inauguration. And then I had to go to Ellis Park, again, the same Ellis Park, because President Mandela was coming to a soccer match at the stadium on the day that he became president. Why would anyone do that? And that was because somebody very wise on the inauguration committee decided that if we put 60,000 soccer fans into Ellis Park, televised the inauguration on the big screen there, 
then that's 60,000 fewer people clogging up that highway where I've got to move these 184 heads of state and VIPs. And more importantly, perhaps 60,000 fewer people trying to cram onto the lawns of the union buildings. There, there wasn't space for six more, never mind um, 60,000 more. Uh, but nobody gave me any new instruction, Dave. I mean, this is the day that Madiba became our president. In fact, he'd probably only been president for like half an hour when he gets on the helicopter and flies to Joburg to the soccer what match. What happens when he comes to Joburg to Ellis Park that that really changes your mind about him as a leader and changes your mind about the whole regime that you had taken for granted in this white minority rule South Africa? Well, I was, I was witness to a conversation that took place between the president and an old-school apartheid-era police colonel who was standing against the wall where the vehicle ramp was that um, the president's motorcade should have driven out to go back to the helicopter to fly back to Pretoria to host the lunch for all these, these big shots. And we see the president trying to get the door of, of his armored car open. And the, the bodyguard team leader asks the guy in the car, why does he want to get out? Like he's just got in. And that guy says, I don't know, he hasn't said anything. So the team leader opens the door and asks the president in an almost impatient fashion, sir, why do you want to get out? Doesn't say anything to the team leader who gets out the way. He walks around the bonnet of the car and he starts heading towards the vehicle ramp over there where they should be driving out. And the only bloke, as I've said, standing there is this colonel. President stops in front of him, puts out his hand, and says to him, Colonel, I just want you to know that today you have become our police. He said, I'm now the president of this country, but I need you to know that there's no more you and us. You are now our police. And this old warrior, Dave, who had the lines on his face to kind of prove that he'd been there and seen it all pretty much, started to cry. And the tears were running down those lines on his face and dripping like this onto the wooden floor where we were standing. And the president just patted him on the shoulder and said, it's okay, Colonel, I just needed to tell you that. And he, then he turned on his heel and went to the car. And if you'd smacked me flat on the nose, I would have been less surprised than what I heard because my rank was only one rank lower. I was a lieutenant colonel at the time, and I didn't believe the stuff he was saying four years ago when he came out of jail and he said, South Africa is for all her people, both black and white. I'm going, yeah, yeah, whatever. That's the party line. Of course you're going to say that. But that day, on the day he became president, the 10th of May, 1994, was the day that I started to question all of this upbringing that I'd had and all of those influences on my 33-year-old life. Mm. And I thought to myself, have you not been wrong? And I started to watch him, thinking that it was still a political facade, this reconciliation stuff. And it didn't even take two months for me to realize that it wasn't a facade at all. He was absolutely genuine about this single-minded ideal of building one South Africa. I find this really interesting because you've been a Christian for 10 or 15 years and yet there's still a lot of racism in you, a lot of prejudice in you and it's observing Mandela that really deals with that racism. What this says to me is, and I've been a Christian a long time and, and many of us have, are there blind spots in me 
that should be dealt with by, by the gospel, by the Lord Jesus, that haven't been dealt with yet. And have I got to get back to my Bible and see the way in which Jesus deals with those things rather than allow someone else to come along and deal with them. And another thing you can talk about over morning tea is what are the sorts of blind spots that we may have even though we've been living the Christian life and reading our Bible and hearing it taught here Sunday by Sunday for many, many years. I think that's an incredibly confronting question for us to ask ourselves. So Rory, almost from this day, there's a few other official things that are to happen, but almost from this day you become the team leader of the Johannesburg unit for Nelson Mandela. There's another team leader uh, down in Cape Town where he spent a lot of time because of the legislature down there, but his home was in Joburg. And you were also responsible for his security when he went overseas to other African nations and to Europe. And another guy looked after America and other places. Tell us about uh, that time in England where, uh, where you, had a, you had a couple of privileges but something actually went wrong. Tell, tell us about uh, the privileges first of all. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that word privilege because I, I need all of you to understand that I, I get the fact that I was extremely privileged to have served um, this great leader. And, you know, who was I? I, w I was just another white cop. Could have happened to anybody, to any of my colleagues. It happened to me. And I'm really grateful uh, for that. And I get the fact that I was privileged. So one of the privileges was, ladies, I got to sleep in Buckingham Palace. <laughs> three nights. And um, very many other similar places, palaces and, and the like. So, um, I mean, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is cool. Do we have any monarchists here or we all Republicans out in the hills? But even <laughs> if you're a Republican, that is a pretty special thing, yeah. is it not? <laughs> and uh, you had to open, or sorry, you had to provide the security as Mandela opened a youth club in Brixton as a part of <coughs> Prince Charles's charity. Uh, just tell us what happened that afternoon very briefly. Well, I'll try and be brief, Dave. You've got to you be know, brief. Yeah. So you're right. So we go to Brixton, not on the average tour of duty of heads of state that visit London, but, you know, he asked to go to Brixton. So there we went. So the, the easy part was, you know, having the ribbon cutting to declare the place open. But once we came out of this community center, it was now an opportunity for this mixed race community to see somebody who to them was a kind of a messiah walking in their streets of their community. So the Bobbies had done the right thing. They had erected crowd barriers down either side of the street. We walk out. All the vehicles, by the way, are over there on the left. And we've got to walk 100 meters that way. And only President Mandela and his host, Prince Charles, are supposed to walk down the road. We get into the road. And I say to one of the palace officials, he was a retired colonel, lieutenant colonel. I said, Colonel, can you please make sure that this delegation goes to the bus over there? And I think he said something to me along the lines of, young man, we've been doing this for hundreds of years. <laughs> I said, okay, Colonel, I'm just saying, we don't have the manpower to worry about anybody other than the president. So where do you think the delegation went? To the bus? They follow them down the road, and the people of Brixton standing behind these crowd barriers take a look at this 40-odd bunch of people coming down there and think, who are they? Let's join them. <laughs> and they start to jump those crowd barriers, only four feet high. And 
What I'm telling you now in a minute or two happens in seconds, and these people are now running at my president. And we've got this very loose formation, us and the British bodyguards, which we now have to make a very tight one. And we are literally pushing people away, handing them off, deflecting them as they're running. I don't know what they want to do, but it's probably all out of love, but somebody's going to get trampled. And uh, I said to the president, uh, sir, we're going to have to evacuate. And he said, no problem. Now I need something to evacuate to. If you're in the middle of a street, it's normally the car. And this Rolls Royce that the Queen had given us was driven by this geriatric driver, man, from the Royal Muse. <laughs> I said to the Poms, what are you doing? You don't have to give someone to me who's the same age as the president. <laughs> and I thought, he's never going to get through this now. And the next thing I heard was that big fan turning on in the, in the front of that, that rolls, and he was right there. Bless his cotton socks. <laughs> so we opened the door, put the president into the rolls, and now Prince Charles's bodyguard is running around the street there like a headless chicken. I, his name was Tony Parker. He's retired now. I said, Tony, put him in the rolls. So we put Prince Charles in the wrong car. Now I look for the president's daughter, who was his official companion, and I just see these wide eyes and arms and legs flailing. Back there in the melee, I shouted to one of the bobbies, push her forward, that's the president's daughter. So they pushed Zanani forward, opened the door. No space for Zanani because Prince Charles's butt is in her seat. But they moved up and made some room. And we eventually get them into the rolls and we get this thing going kind of at a walking pace initially. And then the bobbies brought those beautiful riot horses in there. You know, the ones with perspex blinkers on because poms don't know how to behave at soccer matches. <laughs> And they brought those horses in, three on either side of that rolls, and they just cleared space on either side. And we got it going at a running, jogging pace. And I'm running next to the door thinking, well, if I can run next to the door, somebody can run to the door. Because true as, they are still trying to get to the president. I don't know what they want to do, climb into the rolls where there's no space or what. But that's where I decided to... to and I'm looking over my shoulder for my car, which is the special branch escort vehicle. And I can't see it. It's, it's stuck there in the, in, the, in the melee. And the only thing that is coming past is a police motorcycle with either a South African or a British bodyguard on the back with no helmet on. <laughs> and it's a police motorcycle. And they're zipping past me. Um, and I know where they're going. They're going to close the intersections as we leave Brixton heading for Trafalgar Square to South Africa House. And I looked over my shoulder one last forlorn time for my black special branch rover to come round the corner. And lo and behold, what came round the corner was a beat-up, clapped-out old Renault 5. Who remembers a Renault 5? <laughs> Two-door, off-white color like these seats here, driven by this young lady and her boyfriend. And we just commandeered that vehicle right there in the street. <laughs> Who's we? A big Zulu from Peter Maritzburg called Spiwe Mkise an even bigger pom who played in the front row for the London police rugby team and me, and I'm in the middle, and we're not small guys. <laughs> the middle of the back seat of a two-door Renault 5, and I say to that young lady, follow that Rolls. <laughs> As you do, right, when you commandeer vehicles. <laughs> you know what she said to me, guys? Fellas, what did she say to me? I don't have enough petrol. <laughs> Do me a favor, lady, you know? <laughs> She's literally just saved my career, and now she tells me she hasn't got petrol. And I, it's pointless saying, oh, don't worry, just pull in there to the BP, you know? Because I know that by the time you get the hose out of the pump, never mind into the tank, those police motorcyclists are going to release the traffic across our route, and 
I'm going to lose my principal, which is the golden rule of my profession. You never lose your principal, especially not on foreign soil. So I pulled the radio off my belt that the British police had given me, and I called the, the cop who was with my president in the Rolls-Royce. I said to him, Stan, where's the nearest police station? Because in South Africa, that's what we do. We always have safe houses on our routes. They're normally police stations. Before he answers me on the police radio, my driver says, Kennington Police Station. I said, well, how far is that? She said, it's half a mile up the road. I said, Stan, tell that driver to turn into the police station half a mile up the road. We need to find these two motorcades. And bless her little cotton socks. When that rolls turned in there, she was on its tail. And I jumped out of the back of that two-door Renault 5. I don't know how but it was fast, and I ran into the police station and said, where's the station commander? And here came another one, and superintendent, also with uh, castles and stars on his shoulder and some scrambled egg on his cap, <laughs> striding purposefully towards me when I said to him, superintendent, I'm Superintendent Stain from South Africa, and I've got President Mandela and Prince Charles about to walk into your police station. Well, when his jaw bounced back off the floor, <laughs> I thought I was talking to a fish, because he was standing there like this. <laughs> I said, Superintendent, take them to your office and make them tea. We'll find the motorcades. And uh, Prince Charles walks into this police station, and he is rattled, man. He thinks that he has committed this diplomatic blunder, and mummy is going <laughs> to... And I'm never going to be king, man. <laughs> I said to him, Your Royal Highness, please don't worry. The president doesn't mind these little diversions, which is the, the gospel truth. The president loved the opportunity just to get amongst ordinary people and kind of push the official schedule to the side a bit. He said, really? Do you think so? I said, well, look at him. There's Madiba. Yes? How are you? <laughs> so good to see you. He's greeting the whole charge office. No problem. <laughs> and by the time we got him up the stairs and right down the end of the corridor to the station commander's office. I got a call on the radio to say, okay, we've found the motorcades, you can come down. Knocked on the door and said, we can go, uh, sir. And uh, there was still no tea. I mean, how difficult is it to get two cups of tea in England? That's how rattled those palms were that day. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Thanks, Rory. I just want to cycle back, and we're going to have to move this to a close. When you're a young cop, you go on a, a, a reconnaissance with a couple of senior cops into the uh, Council of Churches building. And you don't really know what the reconnaissance is all about, but you go in there and then you leave fairly quickly. Can you tell us what happens uh, a little later and then tell us what happens during the World Cup when someone sticks a newspaper article in front of you when uh, you're looking after the all-black team. Right. So the reconnaissance into Khotso House, as it was, I didn't know that it was a reconnaissance at the time. My commander told me we were going on some other uh, midnight mission. A few months later, that building is demolished by a massive bomb that explodes in the basement and brings the entire building down. The authorities declared the building unsafe, and it severely disrupted the work of the South African Council of Churches. In 1995, while I am protecting the All Blacks at the Rugby World Cup, this Kiwi journalist walks up to me with a Friday weekly paper where this, the front page is screaming the headline, Security Branch Cop 
exposes the box of dirty tricks. So one of my colleagues, former colleagues, on that church's section has now decided that he needs to purge his soul and tell all of the stuff, the bad stuff that the, that the security branch had done during his time, one of which was blowing up Chotzo House. And the article says that the, the reconnaissance mission into Chotzo House was led by Lieutenant Rory Stain, now a major. And he says to me, Rory, is that you? And I look at this and I say, well, that's definitely me. But I didn't blow up Chotzo House. The people that did blow up Chotzo House either are still in jail or they received amnesty under the Truth and Reconciliation Commission process for, for that act, which was obviously um, a human rights violation. It's the second time where your moral integrity is now being questioned. And it hit me like a bucket of ice water. I didn't see that coming. What happened when this news got to Mandela? So the intelligence guys eventually woke up about six months after I'd started there as his team leader to the fact that, hey, this, this Rory Stain, who is the team leader of the President's Protection Team, is the same one who's being accused in this article. So I get a call from my commander who says, Rory, we need to take this to the President. I said, of course you need to take it to the President. I said, if he wants me fired, then all I ask is that I get one opportunity to thank him and to say goodbye. So he said, okay, you can come to the meeting, but you can't go in. So I'm sitting outside the office of the president when they all go in. Doors are closed, and five minutes later, the doors open, out they all come, and the president sees me sitting there. And he says, yes, Rory, did you enjoy London? Because it was just after that visit to Buckingham Palace. So then I kind of knew, okay, everything's okay. And later he told me, on two occasions, he said, Rory, they wanted you fired, and I told them no. I said, you leave that boy there. He's proved himself. And um, that was the day, Dave. By the way, he still didn't know that I wasn't involved. Um, and that was the day that I realized, you know, there's this, there's this um, Hollywood notion or Hollywood cliche in my profession of taking a bullet for your principle. That's not something that we who do this for a living say lightly. You've got to make a conscious decision that you are prepared to put your life on the line for another human being. And that was the day that I knew that I would do that. If called upon, if necessary, I was prepared to do that because he was loyal to me long before I was ever required to be loyal to him. He had this amazing capacity to give people a second chance, an amazing capacity to seek ways to reconcile races and reconcile groups that were opposed to each other. And you were right in the, right the, the centre of that, the eye of the storm on a couple of occasions yourself. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, one of the things that people often comment on is that Nelson Mandela studied his enemy by befriending his jailers. So in order to understand the mindset of the Afrikaner, he spoke to and engaged with his jailers. And one of the most profound things, and he said many profound things, but one of the most profound things that he said after he came out of prison was the fact that it was not just we who were the prisoners that were set free. We also set free our jailers. And that, I can tell you, is true. Mm. 
um, a, a very profound thing. Yeah, so you're right. I was right there in the heart of it, and I personally benefited from his magnanimity and yeah. forgiveness. Lots of other stories that we could explore at this point, but I just want to pause and, uh, and go back to this idea of reconciliation. Uh, Jesus Christ transformed your life when you turned to him, and uh, Mandela had a big impact in exposing areas of your life where you needed to change. You could almost put these two great figures of history on the same stage. But I've often heard you say that there are, there are radical differences between Jesus Christ and Nelson Mandela. Do you just want to explore that for a sec? Certainly. And before I do, David, I'll give you three differences, three key differences. Before I do that, I've, I just want to comment on, you know, we sing amazing grace, people. But how amazing is God's grace? So I met Jesus in 82 in police college. I met Mandela in 94 on the day he became our president. That's a 13-year span there. And I still had a whole lot of prejudice and messed up stuff in my heart that God was working me through. But here's the thing, Dave. If I had died somewhere in those intervening 13 years, God's grace and his love and his mercy were still so great that I would have gone to heaven. And I still... I struggle to get my head around that sometimes. With everything that was still wrong here, I was acceptable to God, not because of me, mm. but because of what um, his son did. And that yeah. brings me to the difference. Christians aren't perfect. No. They're forgiven. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So the differences? The differences. What are the differences between Nelson Mandela's impact on my life and Jesus Christ's impact on my life? Well, firstly... Nelson Mandela never claimed to be the sinless son of God and able to forgive sin. Quite the contrary. Madiba is on record many times as saying, I'm not a saint, and people should not look on me as if I were a saint. So he understood that he was a, sin a sinner, a fallen human like you and me. So that's the first reason. The second reason, or the second difference, is that I was there on the 13th of December 2013 when he was buried on his farm in Kunu in the, in the Eastern Cape. And I saw the coffin with his body in it, draped in the national flag, come slowly up the hill from the marquee where they held the funeral service to the gravesite, escorted by soldiers slow marching behind the gun carriage that carried the coffin. And that coffin, guys, went into the ground where it is today. But Jesus' tomb on that hill somewhere outside Jerusalem is gloriously empty. Because we know that when Mary got there on that first Easter morning and she thought she was talking to the gardener, the stone was rolled away and she said, Where have you taken my Lord? And he said, Mary, it is me. I have risen. So that's the second difference. And the third one is that, yes, Nelson Mandela impacted my life in a very significant way. But that only lasts for as long as I walk this planet. Because one day I'm going to die, and I'm going to go into an eternity. But I believe that that eternity that I'm going to go into will be with Jesus Christ in heaven with our Father. 
So the impact that Jesus made is eternally greater than that of Mandela because it has this eternal dimension for which I'm so grateful. So those are the three major differences between these two men who impacted my life. Rory, thank you so much for that. Would you put your hands together and thank Rory? We've touched on so many themes, and the theme of reconciliation, the theme of race relations, the themes of forgiveness, and we've learned so much through Rory's experiences this morning. Yes, reconciliation is important, important in our relationships, but reconciliation, being restored to relationship with our Creator, there is no relationship more important than that, and of course we can be forgiven and brought back to that relationship because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as we think about Mandela as a great leader, let us think about Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, who is putting his finger on our lives today and saying we need to be reconciled to him. Thank you so much. I'm going to finish off just by saying in the Anglican Aid Prayer Diary today, we're focusing on reconciliation and healing as we have a number of projects working with Australian Indigenous people in different parts of Sydney. And also to say that there are some books up the back which I'd love you to look at and possibly die. Uh, sorry, possibly buy. <laughs> uh, you'll die from excitement, not from boredom. <laughs> How do I get out of that one? If you remember this man, John Chapman, there's a book about uh, Chapo's life, a book of Chapo's stories, that's $20 and every dollar goes to Bible training in Africa. Here's a brand new book called For the Joy, Stories of Missionary Mums in Different Parts of the World. Here's a book called Everyone Loves a Good Comeback. Uh, this one's 10 bucks. the other two are 20 uh, This is one I wrote and this is about being reconciled to God, making the comeback that we all need to make to our Creator. And this book called Tea and Thread, a coffee table book, all the money from this book goes to supporting Syrian refugees and Iraqi refugees who are currently in Jordan, another Anglican aid project. And so with Father's Day coming up, with the drought appeal, uh, with some opportunities for some gifts here, where all the money goes to support ministry in different places, there's a few ideas for you. I want to say thank you to Pete. Come forward, Pete as uh, you take over the rest of the service. It's been a joy to be here today. Um, if you come back tonight, I'll explore a couple of other stories. So it won't be an absolute carbon copy of this morning. And invite some friends to come along tonight if you, think, uh, if you enjoyed it and if you think it will be helpful to them. And I've heard these stories quite a few times and I never tire of them because they are stories that take us to the heart of many incredibly important issues in life.